I interviewed someone last week and they said if someone, well, it was if um, Tiger Woods brought out a course that said you can win the PGA Tours within 90 days and you've never played a round of golf before, you just time to fuck off. So I don't know why people think it'd be any different in business. Well, people say about stand-up all the time, mate, so I'm happy to talk about it. What do they say? I get the, uh, it's, I think half the time it's fishing for a free break mixed with optimism of the X factor stand on the spot billion quick gains by midday generation it's not just business development courses this is our whole culture now is stand on the x factor spot and become a star instantly do this one course become a millionaire instantly you know take these pills grow your dick become a porn star instantly our whole culture is instant 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 so people send me a message like, oh, you know, I'm the funny one in the group. I really want to try stand up. Got any tips about how I can get on stage and start getting an audience? They don't want to hear the real answer. And the yeah. real answer, I always give them the, I'm a big fan of like using logic to defeat an argument. I always say, would you walk up to someone in a gym, a guy ripped to fuck, not a steroidy guy, but still ripped and go, man, I'd love biceps and a chest like that. Can you tell me? how I would go about getting them. How have you done that? Is there anyone who can put me into touch and be like, you obviously go to the gym and work your tits off five days a week for years and hope for the best. It's the same in any other industry or business you can name. Full stop. Good luck. But do you think they just spill their entitled? No, I think, no, no, no. I think a lot of people have been raised uh, in our culture to believe that if you just want something enough you can have it so there's been a muddling of language with books like the secret um magical thinking uh, a sort of religion there's a part of the human brain that's pre-programmed for religion so i'm not a snooty atheist i'm a i'm a, a, a rational a realistic atheist who understands and is interested in religion and, uh, and i'm totally and utterly um empathetic to religious impulse and the amazing things that psychics and religious bring to people's life who believe in god I just happen to think it's all bollocks, but I will the first one in the church. I'm the first one reading the Quran to know what's in it. I'm the first one at the spiritualist church singing. Why? Because there's no harm in knowing these things. There's obviously part, you go to any rainforest tribe, me and you now on a plane, they will be worshiping something irrationally, hoping it brings results based from kneeling on a mat or twig or beach. That is huge. It is inbuilt in us to believe in a faith-based result. And that's what these um, gurus, whether they're doing it on purpose or not, are trading on, is this religious part of our brain, this faith part that's there. It's in your brain for all, for all of your videos, for all my clever clogs remarks. We're no different to anyone else. You have that part in your brain too. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just a case of leveraging it in the right way. So <clears throat> people come into particularly showbit business let's focus on the business part of the work with that faith-based if you just want it you can be the next taylor swift if you just want it i wanted to be a singer my whole life but if you can't sing you're fucked you can want it all day long you cry holy water if you can't sing you will not be a successful singer if you can sing but can't be asked to graft you will not be a successful singer you need to be able to sing and you need to graft until you have no friends and no family and nothing left in your life. Together, <laughs> millionaire.
well, I get told like I'm demotivational and it's out of order for me crushing people's dreams, but I just call it being a realist. Like the stats will show you that was it 0.2% of the world's population become millionaires. So what makes you think you're in that 0.2%? You're a demystifier. You're okay. So what's this again? It's an, an imprecise use of language. What they mean is you're a demystifier. The problem being Mike, people need mystification and faith to feel happy. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I wish to, to God, pardon me, I wish I could go to church on Saturday. I mean, here's an uncomfortable fact for us. I always love challenging my own views because I feel like I learn more. Yeah. Here's an uncomfortable fact for you and I. I don't know if you are atheist. You might believe in God and go to church every Sunday. Do you, do you have any faith at all? No, not really. I've got, I've got nothing. Zero. I'm Richard Dawkins, science, physics, biology. I don't even believe there might be something after death. We are mud pulp that shat through to the floor game over when we die right i do believe there's probably other life in the universe because mathematically it'll be ignorant to not ponder on that but that's a different story so you and i will live three to four less years than if we were religious biological fact not because god keeps you alive but because congregating together in a big let grant cardone room all believing the same thing all feeling the same emotions, all chanting towards the same goal, which you might never achieve and which might be bollocks, seems to, we don't know why, uh, provide some sort of neuroprotective cardiovascular stress relieving benefit. He believes the same. You're right. I saw you from the last course, Graham. Oh, Kelly, I saw you. How are you doing out the family? We all believe together. There's something in there that back in the day when we were out on the savannah in the caves, we would have been more likely to survive if we linked arms and believed bullshit than clever Gary in the tree on his own hunting for meat. <laughs> he died first being clever clogs. So that's why we've evolved this. Let's go and stand at the NEC in Birmingham and pay 100 pounds to believe in bollocks gene. So it doesn't yeah. matter whether you're talking about your God, whether, whether he's Gary V, whether, whether he's Jesus Christ or, or someone else, if you're a rainforest tribe, that's what I think's going on biologically and and why people feel put out when you say the things you say because there's a there's a biological need in human beings to to congregate and have a joint belief which i would like to replace with culture and art and stand up and theater obviously i would i've got a fucking yeah. conservatory i want so what what was your secret then russell because obviously you must know the one secret tip that you're not sharing with the masses how did you become a stand-up uh, I already podcast? the first thing i told you you need, you know, obviously you need an ability, right? I, I could want to be, I've just watched The Last Dance, a brilliant Netflix. Um, oh, I watched that, it was brilliant, wasn't it? I didn't even like basketball before that. So, I, exactly. So you and I could want to be the next best basketball player. You and I could decide today, that's it. I fucking want to play for the Chicago Bulls. We could practice harder than Michael Jordan ever did for a decade and move to America and volunteer and get involved and, and make friends with the executives that run it you will never play for the Chicago Bulls. Do you know why? You're not tall enough, and nor am I, and we're too old. So you need certain uh, level of attribute for that trade. I don't care. I'm not snobby at all. I don't believe there's a continuum. It's pointless me trying to be a Tyler, for example. I have no visio-spatial. I'm shit at coordination. I can't place things straight. It would be a silly thing for me to practice at. So you need... Let's try and put it into numbers because we know people love numbers. I would say 10% talent, but that is a really, really important 10%. 
And on that sliding scale from naught to 10, there are some people that are 7% talented. And then there's say like Mozart, who's 10, 12, 15% talented, but no more than that. If you do not mix it with the 85 to 90%, I have no life, no friends. I practice till my fingers fall off. I will do a day job. I will drive to do an unpaid gig in Manchester for five years before I leave my day job. That's what I did. Earning no money with no recognition, losing relationships, losing friends, making sacrifices just to be heard into a microphone mixed with my obvious natural ability to make people laugh. That's unfortunately for people who don't want to hear it, the secret. (laughs) Graft plus talent. But people don't (laughs) want to do the second bit. They just do not want to do the second bit. They want to do a direct debit for two grand, read a course for 12. 12 weeks is not even the fart that follows the shit you're going to need to do. Do you think that's then giving them a ready-made excuse for why they failed, though? They can then blame someone else rather than take it upon themselves and take responsibility for them failing. I think it's a sincerely held belief by a lot of people that you can sort of plug in and play success, sadly. Um, it shouldn't be muddled with doing something short term, like a skill, like learning French. Obviously, if you and I decide we want to learn French and buy an, buy an expensive course, which indeed I've done while I've been on lockdown, um, they do work because it's, a, it's an A to B um, journey of acquiring a finite amount of knowledge. But anything experiential based that you need experience for and long and long term gains for, whether it's bodybuilding or commerce or entrepreneurial skills or stand-up comedy you can't dodge the time bullet and the fact that one in maybe one in a million does go on the x factor and i've never sung in public and there's susan boyle and you know i'm sure it does happen twice a decade but you know twice a decade someone wins the lottery so you'd be better off buying lottery tickets um so i want to go to the beginning if you don't mind russell and to be honest i was surprised at your background for someone obviously that went through school and left with a couple of gcse's yeah. So what was it like? What were you like in school? How did you get to university and then obviously becoming what you've become now? So not to, from five to 10 years, top of the class, precociously intelligent, uh, won everything, star of the school play at primary school, clearly going places. Do I need to sit an exam to go to some sort of special school for high achievers? It was discussed. In fact, uh, my mum was very young mother. My dad was Neanderthal, working class, metal working bouncer weightlifting triple ripple of fucking meat between head and neck shaving headed right wing natter loving dad never laid a finger on me undivorced parents lovely holidays but old school do you know what i mean essex so there was never an understanding of education i wasn't prevented it just wasn't part of the culture same way someone might not have tried indian food it's not till you taste curry you realize it's the absolute fucking nuts Literally, for having a pasanda, it's full of almond. So I, got, I didn't sit that exam at 11 to go to Latimer, which was this high-achieving school I could have gone to. In fact, it was the cheese lady at the local co-op who advised my mum against it. So the lady who served the cheese behind the delicatessen counter at the local co-op, Jackie, uh, her son came from council estate like mine, and he was really talented in drama and dance and he sat the exam and went to Latimer and it was too much pressure. It was a pressure school, Julie, don't send him. So my mum decided on balance, local comp, but a good local comp, the best one. We still needed to, it was a church school, so we had to pretend to be religious and jump for a few hoops. As soon as I hit secondary school, downhill, not, not bottom set downhill, 
Um, but I, I started dropping from the top. I just survived in the middle. I was funny enough to make the bullies like me and to not, you know, that bottom tier of kids that smelt of wee and just got punched all the time. I was just above that one. The sort of invisible, weedy, obviously going to leave school as a virgin, not really be popular. I was one of them. So that's what I did. I just had a, a nondescript uh, education and just left. And then it r really ramped up to uh, let's just be like everyone else, smoke weed over the park. I actually thought, you know, I just fucking, as long as you lead a good life, it doesn't matter if you die at 40 or 50, you want to be old anyway. That was literally my thinking. Not in a suicidal way, you know, just kind of, fuck it, I like partying. I was going to raves. And that was it. I ended up working in a shop selling jewellery um, to rich people. So I felt the first bubbling of, of jealous envy why have they got that life why haven't i anger uh and it was just this is the other element that's really important to put in to anyone that might be trying to be inspired by listening to this i should i missed off an important five percent ten percent talent 85 percent hard work and unfortunately five percent luck now entrepreneurs and successful people like me and like you we hate to admit it but we must there's certain things that just fucking happened a bit luckily as well that made the dice fall in our direction, money and success wise. Um, but if to people saying, Oh, well, what's the point then if it's 5% luck, I would say just do more stuff and up your odds. But you can't replicate that in any type of course. And this is one thing we always say, no one wants to know it's luck, but you are almost better prepared for that luck when it comes along because you've worked your nuts off to be in that position. And also, I mean, if you, were to, if you were to go back to zero in a time, time machine, like Robert Webb's novel that's just came out, which is brilliant, and you had to repeat the journey, you and I both know you might not even be able to repeat the same results in the same conditions yeah, exactly. due to the vagaries of luck and how the wind might change, the butterfly effect. But at th the same time, you would change track. Well, I'll try this. I'll try industry A. I'll do industry B. That's related. What about the meeting I had in industry D? So if it, it might only be 5% luck. But if you do 500 things with effort and talent, <clears throat> you probably will get there, probably. Okay? That's the motivation to speak. Anyway, so my 5% luck at this point, otherwise I'd still be smoking weed in the council estate now. I was at an, a warehouse rave, like, <clears throat> grooving it after one too many absinths <clears throat> in the corner. Pulled this ridiculously fit girl who's about fucking half a foot taller than me. I'm 5'10". She's like six foot one mod, model, scouted models. Like, she's like, Emily, could you see if I need to make me laugh, wouldn't it? Started having a relationship with this guy who happened to be posh. Well, middle class, posh to me. And uh, so obviously we're both like 18, 19. Couldn't go back to our parents' houses. So once she started uni in the September... I was going back to halls. That's where I was ending up doing my after party. Then I was waking up in halls, getting on the train to my peasant job that I hated for nine grand a year, selling jewelry to rich people on Bond Street. And she was, I watched her one day and I had a day off. I think I was smoking a spliff. And she wandered across the lawn, sat on it with her friends, reading library books, giggling as the, the sunlight played down on her face. Then two hours later, she was back there having a beer at lunchtime. And it's terrible. I thought, I fucking have hatred and jealousy. We're two homo sapiens next to each other. You're sat on a lawn drinking a fucking fizzy drink, talking about philosophy, and I'm going on a smelly train to work in a shop to eat my sandwich and be subservient and serve the elites. Something fucking snapped in my head. I was like, there is no difference between me and her. 
I'm natural. I've thrown away my the the talent bit, the natural brightness, my love of language. I should. Why can't I? I want to live in halls. I want to be the one on the lawn in my pants, drinking a Foster's at 1am and then going hungover to a lecture the next day. Why can't I experience that just because of my postcode? Fuck that. And the next day I woke up. This is all in my book. If people want to read up this son of a silverback, I call it my book. I woke up the next day and I sent off for A-levels through the post. You can do them online now, but they still send you the course through the post even now in 2020. And I did A-levels out of a box Every night at my nan, I was falling out with my dad at this point. So I'm living in a council flat at my nan's flat in the box room. I would work all day, do A-levels out of a box at night and at the weekend on index cards. No tutors. No, I had to phone a tutor. I had to mail my essays in. And then when I was ready, which I did in record time and, and won an award, not showing off, I did. I had to sit my A-level on a slightly separate chair to show I wasn't part of Enfield College and do all the three-hour exams in my own invigilation lane. And I've got the fastest A grade in sociology ever recorded. I don't know if it's been broken from enrollment to graduation. And then I went to union. I've not been able to switch off that anger ever since. I was got the only first on my degree, which I ended up specializing in. I started in English and then went into the more vocational aspects like journalism and script writing. I came out of that and I went into advertising and from advertising, I went into comedy. But that the, that's the real moment. The, the posh girl on the dance floor who's, quickly showed me something and went it's yours if you want it you're going to need yeah. to do A-levels. And really you were it was that cheese woman that possibly stopped you from having that maybe but you know i would would i change anything because i probably wouldn't be a standard i probably have a really good job and be like all posh and middle class but i probably wouldn't yeah. i'm living now i'm i'm living a unique you know i just less it's 0.001 percent get to be comfortable and ponce around on the telly it's, it's I was gonna so say, sometimes you just pinch yourself and just think how have i managed to pull this off or I do, but the thing about stand-up that keeps you grounded as opposed to some other careers is the graft and craft that's involved. You never yeah. knew. Even singers that really tour, I only know a few, like your Ed Sheerans, who have really kept their feet on the ground because mostly you do disappear up your own bumhole. You can't help it because everyone's carrying you around telling you you're special. But with stand-up, as soon as you put your foot on those boards, even if it's 10,000 people come see it with the O2, you're just a tiny little piece of shit that they could heckle off in a second and they yeah. know it and you know it. And there's something about the nuts and bolts of that. You very rarely meet many stand-ups. I know there are a few, but it's very rare that have disappeared up the bum hole, lost it. And when they do, they, they're not doing comedy for much longer after that. If you go through history and look, they turn into another sort of career or they become actors or singers or something else. So what was it like then? Because being funny in the office and writing funny content and making your mates laugh is one thing, but it's a world apart from, you know, actually doing it in front of a live audience. What was the first time doing stand-up like? Uh, well, it was worse than that because, uh, well, firstly, stand-up wasn't part of when, when, I don't know what your background is, Mike, but when I was growing up, we didn't go to theatres and stuff. We did do like Natural History Museum in the holidays, but we weren't like, should we go to the theatre family? It was like, dad goes to the pub. You go over the park with your mates. Everyone has, a, dad brings a takeaway. That was that typical working class life. So stand-up wasn't part of it. I knew nothing about comedy. My connection to comedy is what met that men of that age, like Jim Davison, Jimmy Jones, Bernard Manning, watching the DVDs of the, the racist jokes in the lounge. I wasn't like right on them, like dead new racism. I just knew it, it wasn't for me. So I, and unfortunately for me, I went to one of the few universities that didn't have a stand-up club in it. Most, most or stand-up events. So I managed to get even, 
through my middle middle class cocoon butterfly wing stage, I emerged still having had no contact with stand up at all. I've never watched it. Um, I was more into books, as you can see, and literature. These are the ways I, I dug my way out. Um, so it was at you. Once I was in middle class advertising agency office, working as a copywriter, and people let should we go to the comedy, and then it would be like a tiny pub with someone being really funny to twenty people. This was blew my mind that this was even a thing. And uh, everyone at work's like, "You're so funny." Like I did all the pitches. You know, when you're in advertising, you have to pitch for the contract. I would always, be, even though I was dead new and only a graduate, I'd be put up front to do the pitch and sell the advertising. And the strap line is boom, do a little joke and make the client laugh. We are winning business. They were like, just try it, Russ. Just try stand-up. And my thinking was, I'll try stand-up once. It's another thing to tell the grandkids one day, and boom, I'm done. And, of course, I got on stage, and um, it wasn't a great gig, but it wasn't a bad one. And I felt that laughter come in, and it was like, like the first time a vampire that doesn't know he's a vampire tastes blood, or the first time a junkie feels heroin go into his veins is like, I didn't realise there was a drug like that. But that's the only way I can describe it. It was like, oh my God, I've not been eating what I'm supposed to eat my whole life. And the, and the new me was born. <laughs> the complicating factor was, as you, you will be able to identify, I was just, I mean, no one, I'm not even going to go, my background, I'm proud of where I come from, but we're talking cleaners, roofers, builders, people that don't have jobs. I was on fucking, it might, sound, it might not sound like much money to you, but I was on like 30, 40 grand a year. I've been out of uni 18 months. This is 2001. But 40 grand a year, not to, for something like you were doing, entrepreneur, not a job, just sitting on cubes, coming out with shit. <laughs> I was on yeah. a purple cube game. what if the headline's this? And then collecting cash. The stuff that dreams are made of. In a glass cube office, dealing with Nestle, Vodafone, massive clients. How could I even consider jeopardizing that to drive up and down the country to gig for free? It was the ultimate arrogant, think you're something special, wannabe Simon Cowell, X Factor, Bellend gamble. So how did your family think of that then? Because they would obviously think that you, you've made it, it's a cure job, you're probably on more money than most people your age or from where you've grown up. Like, what did they think no you one, told no them? One, no one encouraged me. My mum was the only one that, that said... If, it's, if you've got to go for it, if that's where your heart is, you've got to take the leap. But remember, you've got a good job. So I went for the compromise one. Again, people don't want to hear what the compromise is. The compromise is, sadly, you carry on doing the incredibly high-pressure, remunerative, working weekends, work through your birthday, advertising agency job, and gig at night. It was fucking broke me. So we're talking from 2004 to 2006. I was doing stuff like eating a slice of pizza, finishing the pitch, getting in my car, which I'd parked in Fulham, driving to the Frog and Bucket in Manchester. That's a four-hour drive to do a 10-minute unpaid spot where I'd probably die on my ass because I was knackered and then drive back, maybe get back at three or four in the morning, sleep for three or four hours, up for work, maybe a gig in London that night. Hitting the phones in my lunch hour when I had a lunch hour because when you work in advertising, if you, you're a pussy if you take lunch. Um, I'd go to the toilet and I'd be like, can, can I gig for free? You'd go through Time Out magazine if you, um, because it's just before everything had fully changed over online. And it would say open spots welcome. And I would call them anywhere in the country. If I could get there and back and still be into work the next day, I would drive it. And that's what I did for three years until I started to win amateur comedy competitions. And it was just taking the edge off my creativity and work. So this would be at that point where some would say, well, then you got lucky because you were discovered. 
I want one of these. I entered competition, the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year comedy competition, still running, and I won it. And that's when I got a bit of attention from managers and agents. And they're like, I'm not going to sign someone who's like, yeah, you don't work nine to five when you work in advertising. You are basically on call like a doctor. Yes, your office hours are nine till six. But if Nestle are bringing out a new chocolate bar and it's open to Ogilvy and you, you ain't going home that week. (laughs) You're not going home that weekend. I've missed several birthdays. I split up with several girls because of it. So in the end, my creative director was like, it's decision time. We all love that you're doing this stand-up. They'd all been to see me. They all thought it was great. But, you know, you're, you're earning big money now. Your next step is to be an assistant creative director. It's a big thing. And so would they stop supporting you at this point then? Because obviously they didn't no. want you to leave, or were they still supporting No, no the, creative, the creative department, all... Most people in the creative department have an advertising agency all nurture second ambitions, whether you want to be a painter, an artist, a cartoonist, if you're in the visual arts, or a, a journalist or a novelist or a comedy writer, if you're a copywriter like I was, they've all understood the emotion, but we were being lent on by the suits to be more focused and win more business. And my thinking was I had three years in the tank. I'd won a fair few copywriting awards. My thinking was I've probably got a year's grace where I can go back into the advertising industry and go, look, I went off and did stand up for a year. Look what I achieved, but I'm ready to get back into my advertising career now. And I probably was okay. That was my thinking. I had enough cachet um, advertising to go back. In fact, I probably still could just about go back now if I wanted to. Um, And I had enough savings to last me six. I had six months savings before I would have to start selling shit. I I worked out I needed to be bringing in three, four hundred quid a week doing comedy to to break even if I I ate shit food and everything. Now, earning three, four hundred quid a week in comedy is not easy. Even today, a spot in a small club, because obviously I'm not going to be headlining. I'm not even going to be opening. I'm going to be in one of the baby spots in the middle. Doing, you're, look, you're looking at maybe 30 to 50 quid. So you can see how many gigs you're going to have to do over the week, which geographically becomes unfeasible. It's a real struggle to get up to that three, 400 quid a week. And I will say that after three months, I was looking at, loans and bankruptcy websites as well as weighing up my give up on the dream option. So I was like one of those gamblers on the table that I knew I should probably go back to work. I was pushing more and more chips in. I was winning the competitions, but people are like me because I'm a bit high energy and edgy. I've toned it down in recent years. But if you look at some of my old sets, the adrenaline got the better of me. I was a bit mental and specialist. So I was sort of creatively respected, but you know, I wasn't in a suit going, has anyone seen my wife or anything? <laughs> they didn't know where to place me on TV, if you know yeah. what I mean. I couldn't commercialize my innovative offering, as it were. Yeah. So then just at the last minute, I would say in July 2006, so about four months after I left work, I picked up this job for Channel 5. Channel 5 was starting to import American programs that were so short where they had more commercial breaks. So they wanted funny two minute bumpers of someone walking around over America, discovering funny American things to fill in the gaps in the schedule. And I got that job. And I got that job though, using our philosophy. So every, you can imagine how many people they saw. And you know, I'm just another generic white male comedian. It's like, we're 10 a fucking penny. So I knew they'd be seeing people a lot more interesting than me for that job. So when I turned up that day for the interview, I said, they had cameras on me. I went, look, do give me some grace here. 
let's go out with my camera now for half an hour and I will travel around Leicester Square where the audition is and make a video as though we're in America discovering interesting things. Let's do it. So I brought that 10X to my audition and uh, I, I went out and did that. And that's why I got the part plus, so talent plus effort plus luck. And then of course that was enough. It wasn't massively paid, but I was fine till December. And then I did my first Edinburgh show in the August and boom, once you do an Edinburgh show, if you get nominated for this thing called the Perrier Award, it's changed its name to the Edinburgh Comedy Award now. You are fucking, you're, you're made critically. People start to consider you for TV stuff. Did you visualise that you were actually going to achieve these things? Did you, was it unwavering belief or were you just going with the flow? There was unwavering anger and resolution to give it my best shot, I would say. Yeah. And that was still your motivation, that anger of thinking that you might have missed out on all this. Yeah, I knew, I, I also by now I'd, I'd never heard the Edinburgh Festival I thought it was something to do with ballet and I didn't know what the Edinburgh Fringe was a comedy festival and I realized that let me put it this way if you're doing a creative art or any sort of art if you put yourself in contexts where the dial is turned up on the effort part of the formula you've got better odds so if you just stay in London doing open mic nights and going to auditions and hoping someone sees your talent, the effort part is turned down because there's only so many gigs you can do a week. So you're back down to talent plus luck. If you put yourself at the Edinburgh Festival where all the critics and all the other comedians have to watch the shows and you have to do one hour of comedy every night in a box, literally a, like a, a, one of those storage units with a little audience of 30 around you over and over again, you can turn up the effort part because all the journos at some point, one of them will drift through. So you know you're going to get some exposure. Even yeah. if it's negative, you'll get something. So you turn by doing an Edinburgh and there'll be equivalents in all your other industries. You've turned the dial up on the graft punch part. So by doing 30 nights in the, the worst possible conditions of heat you can imagine, I knew, fuck it. You have to hear me. Even if you dismiss me, you have to hear me once. So I took the theory of pretension up. That's what my t debut show was called. And I did it. And I got nominated for the, there's two awards, the newcomer and the main award. And I got nominated. I didn't win it for the newcomer Perrier award or Edinburgh comedy award or Foster's award. It's had the three names. That nomination was enough for TV execs to start sitting in and what's this guy? He's a bit shouty. Can we do something with him? And then yeah, I, got yeah. I got nominated four times on the bounce after that for the main award. And then I won the main award. It's behind that blind. I didn't want the light shining, shining through. But you can see all the little ones. They're all the nominations. They're yeah. all the ones I was nominated. Once I won that in 2010, I knew I was always going to have, even if it was only a 20, 30, 40 grand a year circuit comic career, I knew I'm home and dry doing a creative arts till the nursing home. And I think, fuck it, I'd rather do that than advertising. So you would have been happy with that, doing something you were passionate about for less money, if that's what it was? I think so, yeah. Because you, you do it, if you can, as much as I loved advertising, I couldn't honestly say it was like a, a hobby type thing. Whereas yeah, yeah. me writing my short stories and my funny monologues, I'm sort of getting to do dress up and playing. And, and I knew once I had a family, there's crushing a stand-up is on the circuit and it's very very difficult and it's a hard 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 job um i knew i would still get days at home with my daughter and it's turned out to be true you know yes i work hard at night but then i get time off and i would god i will that will happen to me i will go down at the moment i'm in the it's been a long after that rocket start it's been a long slow steady climb always a climb but fuck me it's 
I've paid my price for the quick bit at the beginning with the slower climb. Yeah. I'm now up to the one to 3,000 seater on tour, which is... Yeah, the well, you talk... So the Fast and the Curious, I was going to come to see you in Oldham. That's been obviously postponed now because of lockdown. How yeah. different is this tour from your first tour in terms of content and yourself? How different are you, do you think? Um, content, I would say I'm speaking more about family and I've made the, more, the observations a lot more accessible and mainstream. I've learned about pacing and breath, but it's still very much me. You, you could you could teleport from that show to this show and just see a slightly older karma, but it's consi creatively consistent. Yeah. Um, whether I've got another layer to go, I don't know. The but once you've done the one to three thousand seater tour, um, and I know Oldham's a smaller room. That's because I was doing smaller rooms at the end of the tour because I've done all the one. There's only a certain amount of one to three thousand seaters you can play. The next stage is to do a couple of nights at the three thousand seaters, and then you're into arenas, which I'm a bit sort of agnostic about i don't know if it suits my style or yeah. acoustically and choreographically so what the point i was making is in case people think i'm patting myself on the back i know i will eventually have done the most numbers i'm going to do because at the moment i'm doing say 120 140,000 tickets per tour and i'll start to go down the other side everybody does everyone and i'm you know i'm not I'm not not looking forward to it back down to the 500 seats. And then if I could just keep an arts center career going yeah. where I know people will come out to a hundred, 200 seater pay 20 quid or whatever the inflationary equivalent is. I'm, I'm, I'm working class at the end of the day. If I'm paying my bills, doing something that's not breaking me, I'm happy with that. You yeah, can't disappear yeah. at your bum hunger. Hey, I want to be in an arena because there lies the path of misery. So lockdown that's proposed, um, postponed your tour. How much stuff have you seen in lockdown that you're going to incorporate in your um, well, tour when I'm, you come back? So I'm very careful not to moan too much because the real tour, as I call it, which was already 14 months, was complete. Yeah. Thank God. Otherwise, I would be having um, liquid issues at the moment, if you know what I mean. Because my business <laughs> is no money, no money, no money, no money. P Diddy for a year, no money, no money. That's my, that's yeah. my graph does that, the nature of the business. I don't get paid a penny until the complete tour is finished. <laughs> so imagine oh, is that, that how it works? Yeah, because they've got to collect all the things, work out your costs, your tour manager costs, and it pays out. So it's a very strange business model. So, and you never occurred to me that I would be earning nothing and not putting anything in the pot to pay out for a year. Why would it, a, a global pandemic occur to me? If I got hit by a car or anything happened to me, I'm insured for all that. Not insured for this. So, so you're I mean. writing material the whole way through the tour then? No, well, I just, every time something funny happens, like I just make a little note on my uh, notes app on here. And then when there's enough bullets on there for me to talk for 40 minutes on stage, I start previewing. When you come to see me, you'll know I'm very autobiographical. So say Lin, Lin, we're out and Lindsay does something to embarrass me or something or sticks up for me or he's not Nick Grimshaw, fuck off and shouts across the restaurant. <laughs> I, I will, I won't write, I don't go home and go, and then Lindsay said and wrote it. I put a bullet point, Lindsay's funny restaurant argument. And then I'd go to a preview in a small room. And with just that bullet point, I would tell the audience how it happened. Like I was their friends in the pub and listen, in a sort of Darwinian way, there's a laugh there. I'll try it tomorrow, cut the bit that didn't have a lot, and I'll tell the story again. So I build it in a Darwinian way, the show, over about 30 previews. So I go on to 50 people 30 times and slowly build this 60, 70, 80, 
when it gets to 90 minutes, I cut it in half and I've got my two 45 minute halves, which then become yeah, yeah. sadly for me and my health two 60 minute halves. <laughs> if people want a taste of my stand up in lockdown, I do these things called canings, which are another innovation yeah. I came up with to get around TV commissioning um, time blocks. I was so sick of coming up with an idea and then, oh, you're not on Mock the Week this week. You're not on Have I Got News for You? And everyone does the jokes first. I'm like, why does no one stand up in their bedroom? And just do stand up down a camera. Why isn't no, I just didn't know why anyone hadn't done it. So I thought, well, I'm going to fucking do it then. So that's yeah. what I do once a week. I do these single canings. I've done loads of lockdown material. There's loads of things to observe, like drama passing, for example, is a new social phenomena where you're walking down the street and instead of someone just giving you the two meters, they do a big theatrical drama bend back into the bush. <laughs> so I've turned that into a routine. Yeah. I don't know which is more annoying in the supermarket. It's um, those that can't read the arrows on the floor or those that make a big deal about those that can't read the arrows on the floor. I, yeah. I, you I've know, done, like... done stand up about that. I've done, I've done stand up. Like, if you end up being hurt because you couldn't read an arrow, read an arrow on the floor, I'm sorry to break this to you, but it's probably what evolution wanted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I wanted to get on social media. Then. Did you see um, the COVID-19 is from 5G masks? You know, that's the real source of and yeah. all the David Icke stuff. What did you think about that? Well, I developed, uh, if you stalk my Facebook and Instagram, anyone who's watching this, you'll see a character. I've never done character comedy before, ever. And out of sheer boredom, I've been doing funny characters online. In fact, that's how we ended up talking. I did, for one day, I became this American motivational speaker. I haven't done him since. Not just purely, I just, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop at the moment. Uh, but I also have done a character called Terry Donovan, who's a reformed football violence fan, but has now discovered the truth movement. He's like sort of late fifties secretly really just wants to kick Millwall heads in and stuff, but pretends he's like connected in a spiritual way. Uh, he's, he practices Reiki as well as questing for truth. And he's, he's out to prove the 5g mask conspiracy theories, but he's found who funded it. And it's been funded by Iceland supermarket because they're the ones who would benefit most from us being locked in our houses. I know I'm probably gonna get sued for this. This video will be taken down. The more this video gets taken down, the more of an indication that it's the truth, as we know, and share it, rip it, hashtag, that's why mum died in Iceland, if you wanna get it going. But, but there are people out there that believe this stuff. In social media, they all group together and just because somebody else, I would say this, right? When we were kids, and it's a bit of an odd um, tangent to go off, right? Pedos were funny, right? They yeah. were, they'd turn up on the, the hill by the park, they'd flash it, and someone would read out in school, oh, there's a flasher, and it was like amusing. You go, well, if he comes near me, I'll twat him. That's mm. how we used to deal with pedos. And then they knew they were weird. Everybody knew the weird family in your local town, village, or street. Don't go by their house. Nowadays, these weirdos can go online and find other weirdos that almost like validate their weirdness. Yeah. So that's why you've got people, I don't know, wanking off to balloons and stuff. It's yeah. because there's 60 other people in the UK. And what? I think a lot of these truthers fall into that category. And they believe like the most unrealistic truths, which is a maddest thing, and can't goes, see the ones that are blatantly obvious. It goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning of this conversation about faith. It's the, that part in the brain malfunctions really easily when it's empty. So fill that faith part of your brain with arts, movies, books, things that aren't real. Like no one would make fun of me if I was reading a powerful Holocaust novel, but all the characters were fictional. And 
you wouldn't go here do you but these didn't really exist you would get it i've used my imagination to believe in something not real to have an emotional feeling holocaust is real the character's not even if it was a made-up war in a book not the holocaust a made-up war in a country that didn't exist with made-up characters and i cried my eyes out and everyone started reading it and going oh, it's so it's so beautiful the main character jacob Still, you wouldn't judge me. You wouldn't go, oh my God, Russell Kane's lost it. He believes in something that isn't real, a novel. So arts and culture is a great way. Um, and even, even um, your business and your goals, to pour into that faith part of your brain. When it's empty and people are a bit scared, it's very dangerous. You reach for false gods, false prophets, which you could spell both ways with some of the people you deal, deal with. Prophet with a PH and a fucking F-I-T, Gary B. Um, so you can, uh, you, you can pour the wrong thing into it. I mean, what's hilarious is we've had a few sort of water testing WhatsApps from friends where they're trying to find out if you believe it. Oh, well, this stuff about 5G, people saying <laughs> scary. Have you ever read anything like it? And they're testing the water to see if you believe yeah. in it then when you say something scathing back, you just don't get a reply. But there's something we can stop doing right now. And that is believing the gullible, idiotic, conspiracy theory bollocks that's firing into my WhatsApp every 30 seconds like a dirty information bukkake on the face of clarity. My favourite one is explain Sweden then. No oh, well, lockdown. Well. No death rate. That's what I had that hundred times. Then everyone in Sweden started dying at a higher rate than anyone in the world. Silence. When I'm doing Terry Donovan, uh, people haven't even spotted it. I actually use some of David Icke's words. And then underneath, David Icke's followers go, you're just taking the piss out of something serious, not realising. <laughs> so in one of my Terry Donovan videos, Terry, these are, these are Terry's glasses, actually. These are the glasses I use. He has like a flat side pie. Terry comes on and says... Uh, I have read, I've been up five days and five nights. These are David Icke's exact words being done by Terry. I've been up five days and five nights. I have read everything to do with this virus. So you cannot tell me I'm not an authority on the situation. You're going to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, that I'm just a cabbie. But I have spent literally five days. I didn't sleep. Five days solid reading everything on this. So I am as qualified as any fucking scientist. I've not slept for five days. I've absorbed everything that can be absorbed. Listen to what the man has just said, that you can learn all of epidemiology <laughs> and virology and all of the socio and demographic implications of a virus in five days. You couldn't learn it in five years. And then people just go, but the stuff he comes out with, it's just, it's literally nonsense. Who do you think's made the most profit out of this coronavirus crisis. Who has made, pardon the distasteful pun, a fucking killing? Iceland. Iceland supermarket, probably to you, just looks like a, an innocent frozen food store. Far fucking from it. They made 1.3 billion pounds since this outbreak started in Wuhan, in Thailand, in November. Just go on Kerry Katona's Instagram and have a look. Clearly money coming in from somewhere. If that's not a giveaway, I don't know what is. Thankfully, it's mostly laughed at. It's more dangerous when it goes into um, immunisation. Not for the COVID um, immunisation, but it seems to have given another lease of life to people who don't want to give their kids measles jabs. And it's just not fair on the people that can't have the measles jabs for medical reasons. 
that this is causing measles outbreaks. So people that aren't anti-vaxxers but have got health conditions and can't have the immunisation are dying because of a discredited paper. Because those are choosing not to have them. It's I think crazy. Um, there's a lot of stuff online um, and it's the same type of thing with lockdown now. Um, our kids, um, well, only my youngest daughter, she can go back to school now. And there's almost like, I call them silverbacks as in the mums at school, you know, the proper mumsy mums on their playground. I'm a better mum than you. Yeah. They, they ride a wicker bike to school or whatever and they make their own school clothes with their kids. <laughs> they're now being judgmental about some of the mums that want to send their kids back for the three hours they're allowed back in socially distance learning in school. And it's a weird kind of... We're having the same conversation here. It's, like, it's like a cold war in the WhatsApp group, in the mums WhatsApp group at the moment. Yeah, we've, we've, we've had it as well. Um, people, I don't know if people mean to shame you, but, oh, well, that's just, you know, there's no way I'm going to take the risk. It's like, are you saying that if I sent, my daughter's only at kindergarten, so admittedly it's more of a cosmetic choice for me. I don't have, my daughter's not missing any scheduled education, but still I would like her to go back to kindergarten and have some socialising experiences. She's starting to speak like a man uh, of my age because that's her whole social life is me and her hanging out. And, uh, I mean, I mean, there, the, the science really is out. There's a, it's a calculated risk and it's not a risk we can even take because we don't really know what the risk is. We, we don't know how, how ill children get systole. We also don't know how transmissible children are, meaning if my daughter gets covered in COVID at school, how immune is she to bringing it home and giving it to me and Lindsay, even if she doesn't have it? So we don't have the information. It's a difficult one there. So I actually empathise with the Cold War there because it's hard to know. I don't agree with the shaming, but I empathise with the muddle and opposition because how are we supposed to decide? We haven't had a Jacinda Ahern sit down and go, this is the correct thing to do. Yeah. What's happening tomorrow? We've had, oh, it's all personal choice, free market economies, let's become American. You know, we just, we should, we need a bit more badass rule setting. Um, how did you get on with homeschooling? How long did you last? I lasted like 10 days. As I say, we weren't under pressure to actually do anything except a few potato prints and a fuzzy felt because she's four. <laughs> and then, you know, we did about a week of, oh, look, we can learn historical figure. And then it was like, there's the monster munch. There's Netflix. Fuck off. Yeah. And what about those bellends there that were taking photographs of absolutely everything they were doing and posting it online? I know. Looking to need more work sent from school. And uh, what I said, to, so I did this stand-up rant having a go at people posting their perfect lockdown lives online and there was a response i won't say from what journalist but not you know from an established journalist saying i find it so cynical what you've said what's wrong with putting a bit of everyone's struggling what's wrong with me putting my yoga video and my italian video online and bringing the net level of happiness up in the world what this person has failed to understand is that the majority of normal humans like me, you and 90 other percent of people, we aren't doing yoga and Italian and improving our lives. Our tummies are growing. Our kids are eating fucking monster munch and they're starting to sound like Mr. Tumble and we failed. It doesn't. I don't look at your perfect washboard abs learning Italian and go, I don't feel so bad now because Becky um, from Hale Village is happy. I've, it's the equivalent of you tap dancing next to someone in a wheelchair after they've broken both their legs skiing. I don't look at your tap dancing leg and go, I feel so much better about my femur being shattered. I just feel like I've got <laughs> shit legs. Yeah, so yeah. I've got a quick fire one. Let's go. So um, NHS clapping. I've been doing it, um, but I think it's sort of run its course now. And I'm not a fan of, of display clapping, disclapping, I call it. If you're display clapping, if anyone wants to know what it is, just a normal clap. If you're bringing the arms out too wide and you're left with stinging, or you've got any wrist action, if you're doing a look round as clapping, 
any sort of underbite whilst looking at a neighbour, that's overdoing it. As for anyone who sets a firework off, you deserve the bloody stump you'll be left with when you lose your hand. And uh, last one, they say it's going to be a baby boom or a divorce boom after this is all done. Which one are you? I think it's probably going to be both, isn't it? You'll create the child, your marriage will break down, move out. On that note, thanks very much, Russell. Thank you. I'm off to 10x my afternoon. What I mean by that is work my tits off in a realistic way.